Open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Alleluia. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. Alleluia. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Alleluia, alleluia. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. Alleluia. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Alleluia, alleluia. The Old Testament lesson for the Tuesday after Easter is written in the third chapter of Daniel, beginning at the eighth verse. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and brought accusation against the Jews. They answered Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall be cast into the middle of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not respected you. They don't serve your gods and don't worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered them, Is it on purpose, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my God nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, whenever you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you don't worship, you shall be cast the same hour into the middle of a burning, fiery furnace. Who is that God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it happens, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the form of his appearance was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than it usually was heated. He commanded certain mighty men who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their pants, their tunics, and their mantles, and their other clothes, and were cast into the middle of the burning, fiery furnace. 
Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the middle of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste. He spoke and said to his counselors, Didn't we cast three men bound into the middle of the fire? They answered the king, True, O king. He answered, Look, I see four men loose, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are unharmed. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace. He spoke and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the middle of the fire. The local governors, the deputies, and the governors, and the king's counselors, being gathered together, saw these men, that the fire had no power on their bodies. The hair of their head wasn't singed. Their pants weren't changed. The smell of fire wasn't even on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and have changed the king's words, and have yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Thanks be to God. The epistle is written in the thirteenth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, beginning at the twenty-sixth verse. Brothers, children of the stock of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, the word of this salvation is sent to you. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't know him, nor the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning them. Though they found no cause for death, they still asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had fulfilled all things that were written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. We bring you good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this to us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have become your father. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Thanks be to God. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Alleluia! Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? Alleluia! The Holy Gospel is according to St. Luke, the twenty-fourth chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord! As they said these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were terrified and filled with fear and supposed that they had seen a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? 
Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is truly me. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still didn't believe for joy and wondered, he said to them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. He took them and ate in front of them. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you, that all things which are written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures. He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send out the promise of my Father on you. But wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Here ends the gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Alleluia, alleluia. Christ was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Alleluia. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Alleluia. A sermon by St. Ambrose with my edits and additions. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now looking at our account, our gospel account from Luke, some will say, how then did Thomas, while he did not yet believe, touch Christ? Like we hear in John. But it seems Thomas doubted not of the resurrection of the Lord, but of the mode of the resurrection. And he had to teach Thomas by touching him, as Paul also taught me. For this corruption must put on incorruptibility, and this mortal body must put on immortality, so that the unbeliever believes, and the hesitant cannot nail, because we believe more easily what we see. Now, Thomas had reason to be astonished when he saw everything being closed, a body slipping through impenetrable barriers, without any damage to their structure. Yes, it's wonderful that a bodily nature has passed through an impenetrable wall, we do not see it happen. We see its presence. He was easy to touch, but difficult to recognize. The troubled disciples, too, thought they saw a spirit. This is why the Lord, to show us the character of the resurrection, said, Touch and see. A spirit has neither flesh nor bone, as you see that I have them. So it is not an incorporeal nature, but the state of his resurrected body, which has made him penetrate normally impenetrable fences. Because what is touched is body, what is felt is the body. For it is bodily that we are resurrected. For the seed is a body of flesh, whence raises up a spiritual body. One is subtle, the other, in a manner of speaking, gross, being further thickened by the conditions of his earthly infirmity. How, indeed, had there not been a body while the marks of the wounds, traces of scars, which the Lord presented to be touched, remained? 
By this, he not only strengthens the faith, but he excites the devotion. The wounds received for us, he preferred to take them to heaven. He did not want to erase them, to show God the Father the price of our liberation. It is in this state that the Father places him on his right, welcoming the trophies, the scars of our salvation. Such are the witnesses, those scars, that the crown of his wounds has produced for us. Now, let us consider how it is done, according to the resurrection appearances, to the apostles, which we hear both in John and in Luke. According to John, the apostles have believed, since they have rejoiced. But, according to Luke, they are taken back as incredulous. They didn't believe. According to John, in the upper room, they received the Holy Spirit. But, according to Luke, the apostles are commanded to dwell in the city until they are clothed with the gift of the Spirit from heaven. It seems to me that one, as an apostle, that is, John, has touched the highest and the highest. The other, Luke, the next highest, closer to the human. The first one, John, has allowed the details of the story. The other one, Luke, has summarized the story. For there can be no doubt of him who testifies of deeds to which he himself has witnessed. In other words, there's no doubt of what John testifies, of what he saw. And John says, his testimony is true. He's telling us what he saw. As for the person who deserves to be an evangelist, that is Luke, it is also appropriate when telling the stories of the resurrection to remove from him all suspicion of negligence or dreaming of men. In other words, Luke tells us what the witnesses told him. There is no suspicion of him lying or of the daydreaming of men, of the thoughts of men entering into his story. What Luke tells is accurate. Same with John. Thus, we think that both John and Luke are true. They are not separated by the difference of thought or the diversity of people. For if Luke says at first that they did not believe, later on he shows that they did believe. If we consider the beginning of the resurrection narratives, well, then we think that there's opposition in the two stories. But if both stories are a continuation of the resurrection narratives, then there is plenty of agreement, nothing but agreement, between John and Luke. That is assured. Let us consider the very words of the text. John, in his resurrection appearance, says, And the apostles rejoiced at the sight of the Lord. So he said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I too send you. Having thus spoken, Jesus blew on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, those to whom you will forgive their sins. They will be forgiven them, and those to whom you will retain them, they will be retained. Now, as for Luke, he said, And how they recognized him at the breaking of the bread. But while they were speaking in this way, he found himself in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. It is me, do not be afraid. Troubled and frightened, they thought they saw a spirit. Now, from these two accounts, it might seem that the differences between John and Luke here are numerous. But in Luke, it is the evening of the resurrection, whereas, according to John, it is late, on this day after the Sabbath, that we see our Lord appear to the disciples and present his wounds to their touch. It seems to us, to avoid any uncertainty between the two accounts, that we had better look more carefully. Jesus seems indeed to have shown himself apart from the eleven, as he already had shown himself to Cleopas and the other disciple in the evening. 
And like these two, the eleven could also come together to strengthen others. And as we read, they were troubled, according to Luke. And that is why, in Luke, he opened their minds to understand what is written. But there is no doubt that Luke has written longer and John more succinctly. How, indeed, would they say that only Peter saw our Lord if he had appeared to all? But just as among the women he appeared only to Mary and to the other Mary Magdalene, as well as to Peter's men at daybreak. And Paul says, I taught you first that Christ died according to the Scriptures, and was buried and resurrected on the third day according to the Scriptures, and appeared to Cephas, that is, Peter. This is why Mark explicitly shows us the young man instructing the women to tell Peter and the disciples that the Lord is risen. Peter therefore saw the Lord alone. It was because his devotion was always ready and willing to believe. So he was busy collecting more clues for his faith. Sometimes with John, sometimes alone, everywhere, however, Peter runs with zeal. Everywhere he is either alone or first. Not content to have seen, Peter returns to look at what he has seen, and, inflamed with the desire to seek the Lord, he is not satisfied to just see him. He sees him alone. He sees him with the eleven. He sees him with the seventy. Peter still sees him when Thomas has believed. Peter sees him again when he is fishing, but not satisfied to have seen it in the impatience of his desire, neglecting his catch at that moment in the boat, forgetful of the danger. Without, however, forgetting the respect, as soon as he saw the Lord on the shore, he took his garment back on. But it seemed to Peter too long to see his Lord to arrive with others while sailing, so he jumps in the water and goes to his Lord leaving the others in the boat with the catch. That's how much Peter wants to see his Lord, never satisfied. He always wants to see his Lord. Likewise, again, when the Lord walked on the sea, Peter ran to meet him on the waves of the sea, forgetting his own nature. So when the Lord was arrested by the Jews, he was the only one to draw the sword against the troop. Likewise, here again, when the Lord stands on the shore, by a dangerous shortcut, Peter hastened the homage of his religion. He went straight for Jesus through the water. There is no doubt that Peter believed, that he believed because he loved, because he loved, because he believed. So he is pained. Peter is pained when he has asked three times by our Lord, Do you love me? Because we question whoever we doubt. But the Lord does not doubt. He questioned not to learn, but to instruct Peter that at the moment of ascending into heaven, he left us on earth as the representative of his love. For you read, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, Yes, you know, Lord, that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Having a good conscience of himself, Peter testifies of a disposition which he did not take for the circumstance, but which God knows for a long time. Which other could easily affirm it of oneself. Also being alone among all to declare oneself, it is preferred to all. For charity, that is, love, is greater than all. We must also consider with great care why the Lord having said to him, Do you love me? Why does Peter say, You know, Lord, that I love you? Well, it seems to me here that to cherish involves the charity of the Spirit, to love a kind of warmth engendered by the ardor of body and soul. 
And Peter marks, in my opinion, that not only his spirit, but his very body was a fire for the service of God. As well, the third time, the Lord asked him either, Do you love me? But, Do you love me? And I command him to graze no more as the first time, the lambs that must be fed with milk, nor as the second time, the young sheep, but the sheep, so that being more perfect, it will govern the most perfect. That is why being perfect in every way, no longer being able to be thrilled by the flesh to the glory of passion, the crown is awarded to him. When you are young, Jesus said, you put on your belt and went where you wanted. But when you become old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie you to lead you where you do not want to go. Oh, good old age. The prolongation of life did not render her powerless to use herself, but the maturity of virtue prepared old age for martyrdom. It represses the thrust of the passions of the body, this old age, but old age does not yield to lust, flees sweets, does not covet beauty, for the flesh covets against the spirit and finds to go wherever it wills, the cross paths of various pleasures. But the good old age of the soul chooses not that which is agreeable to the body, but that which is useful to the soul, and does not allow itself to be taken up with the capricious wills of the body, but is retained, as in spite of itself, by a break who masters it. So Peter, while being ready in his heart to undergo martyrdom, yet when danger has arisen, let the firmness of his soul falter. For the use of the heavenly gift captivates us by its sweetness. Who would not choose martyrdom if he could die at his pleasure? So Peter himself seems not to want, but is preparing to conquer. And what a marvel if Peter will not, when the Lord says, Father, if it be possible, remove this chalice from me. However, it is not my will that is done, but yours. Finally, after the experience of his presumption, Peter no longer dares to promise the perseverance of his will, but, as if to be supported, seeks the company of another. So many testimonies of virtue lead us to believe that Peter could not doubt. That John also believed when he saw the Lord is evident, since he believed as soon as he saw the empty tomb of his body. Why does Luke mention that they were troubled? Above all, because the opinion of the greatest number includes the opinion of some. And then, because even having believed in the resurrection, Peter could be troubled, seeing that the Lord in his body was suddenly entering a closed place of locked doors and solid walls. Luke has therefore followed every detail in the historical order. John considered the final detail, this one the succession. For saying, then he opened their minds to understand what is written. John admits, well too, that the disciples believed. As for these two accounts, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, in John, he blew the Holy Spirit on the eleven as being more perfect, and in Luke, he promised to give it to others later. Or it's the same as he blew the Spirit here. They're promised. And there does not seem to be a contradiction, since the gifts are divided, to one is given the word of wisdom, to other the discourse of science by virtue of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gift of healing, to another the variety of tongues. So he has blown an activity here in John, in Luke, else he promises another. For in John there has been granted grace to forgive sins, which seems more sovereign, and it is blown out by Christ, to make you believe that it is the Spirit of Christ, and to believe that the Spirit comes from God, 
for God alone forgives sins. As for Luke, he describes the outpouring of the gift of tongues. As you read in this place, Receive the Holy Spirit. Those whose sins you will forgive, they will be forgiven them. While in the Acts of the Apostles you read, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak various tongues, according as the Spirit gave to speak. As for the variety of appearances, post-resurrection appearances, it signifies the multitude of angels who serve him, as the Lord himself had promised in those terms, and you will see the angels coming down and ascend to the Son of Man. And here at the end of Luke, it pleases God that with the end of the gospel, our speech also ends. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Alleluia, alleluia. My soul doth magnify thy name. 
and my feet, that it is I myself. Alleluia, alleluia. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. O God, who gladdens us with the annual solemnity of the Lord's resurrection, mercifully grant that by celebrating these temporal feasts, we may by your grace attain eternal joys. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Abide with us, Lord, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. Abide with us and with your whole church. Abide with us in the evening of the day, in the evening of life, in the evening of the world. Abide with us in your grace and mercy in your holy word and sacrament, in your comfort and your blessing. Abide with us in the night of distress and fear, in the night of doubt and temptation, in the night of bitter death, when these shall overtake us. Abide with us and with all your faithful ones, O Lord, in time and in eternity. Amen. Let my mouth be filled with thy praise and with thy honor all the day. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, Almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings, being ordered by thy governance, may be righteous in thy sight. Through the same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. We give thanks unto thee, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, thy dear Son, that thou hast protected us through the night from all danger and harm. And we beseech thee to preserve and keep us this day also from all sin and evil, that in all our thoughts, words, and deeds we may serve and please thee. 
Into thy hands we commend our bodies and our souls, and all that is ours. Let thy holy angel have charge concerning us, that the wicked one have no power over us. Amen. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Bless the Lord. Alleluia, alleluia. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, alleluia. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Amen.